you know, this is the way the internet was built. This is what the internet was meant to be. This group of people who can come together, work cooperatively to build something for the betterment of society. Welcome to episode 376 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The Internet Society, also known as ISOC, is one of the best-known organizations advancing a safe and secure internet for everyone. This week, we have Mark Buell and Katie Watson-Jordan from ISOC to discuss the organization, its work, and ISOC's upcoming annual Indigenous Connectivity Summit. Mark and Katie talk about their current project in the Arctic with a local Indigenous community and the community network project they'll develop next in Hawaii during the summit. They tell us about the history of ISOC and the nature of their work involving access and trust. We learn about how policy experts and technologists are working together in ISOC and within their partners to support their mission and vision. Check out internetsociety.org for more on ISOC and for details about the Indigenous Connectivity Summit, November 12th and 13th in Hilo, Hawaii. Now here's Christopher with Katie Watson-Jordan and Mark Buell from the Internet Society. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Usually one of the more northern guests. Um, Usually I'm interviewing people that are to the south of me. And I've uh, got a special guest today, Mark Buell, who is coming to me from Ottawa, um, but oftentimes coming from a considerably farther north place. Mark Buell is the Regional Bureau Director for North America in the Internet Society. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Chris. And then we also have someone who's very special to me because I used to work with Katie. Uh, We have Katie Watson-Jordan, the Senior Policy Advisor at the North American Regional Bureau for Internet Society, or ISOC. Welcome to the show. Very, very excited to be here. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. So the first question, I think, is since I, I prompted with it, Mark, what do, you, what do you do up in the Arctic Circle? I think that's the, the piece a lot of people will be most interested in out of this whole interview. So one of the uh, main activities the Internet Society has taken on in North America in 2019 is uh, working with indigenous communities across Canada and the U.S. to deploy community networks. And uh, Katie and I have been working with a community in the northern part of the Northwest Territories called uh, Uluhaktak. Uh, it's a community about 160 miles north of the Arctic Circle, population of about 400 perched on the edge of an island in the Arctic Ocean. So uh, the two of us have been actually spending a fair bit of time in the Arctic working on connecting communities, not just Uluhaktak, but other ones across the the Canadian North. Kind of reminds me of the saying that if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. If you can bring high quality broadband to Uluhaktak, then you can do it anywhere. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. Uh, in some respects, I often think the way we we deployed the internet originally was was backwards. We connected as many people that we could as cheap as possible and as quickly as possible when what we could have done was was work from the hardest communities to connect and worked our way back and, and use lessons that we learned from from harder to connect communities and, and use that in, in cities. Well, let's let's stop back for a second then now that we've gotten past the exotic nature. You know, I had a friend who spent two years in Antarctica and that's the, the first thing I always encourage people to talk to him about because who cares about anything else? <laughs> Um, but what I'm, uh, I guess a good place to start, let me poke you, Katie. Um, why did you leave us at Next Century Cities and what have you been doing since? 
Oh my gosh. Well, it was very hard to leave Next Century Cities. Um, the organization is really dear to my heart. And I think one of the things I like best about working at ISOC is that I have never stopped working with Next Century Cities. Um, there is a lot of fantastic work going on uh, between our two organizations now, which is fantastic. But the, the work that we're doing now is, is really special because I think it's the first time that I've worked with such remote communities um, and getting to spend time in, in these areas and hear their stories and hear the ways that they are able to use very, very small bits of the internet, either with really high data caps um, or with really low speed. And hear what they're able to do with that and what they could do with so much more has been so inspiring. Gives you a sense of what we take for granted. Exactly. So, I mean, even we've been working really closely with a lot of elders in Uluhaktak and the things that they want for their, their children and their grandchildren that they think the internet will bring. It's the same things that we hear in every other city across the region. I mean, people want education and healthcare and they want economic opportunity. But for communities where those things are already so much harder to get, the internet is a completely new world and they're really excited to do whatever they can to bring it to their communities. And um, so we've been working really hard to partner with great organizations that can help them do that and to provide training and um, resources where we can. So Mark, let me get a sense of the history of ISOC. Where did it start for someone who's not familiar with uh, the idea of internet society? The history of ISOC is, is quite interesting. Um, ISOC was founded in, in 1992 by a, a group of internet pioneers for a few reasons. And you know that's 27 years ago. And 27 years in the internet world is is basically an eternity. That's uh, almost internet prehistory. Right. It's like it's like the Jurassic. Exactly. Exactly. But we were founded by the likes of people like Vint Cerf, Bob Kahn, and and others for a, a number of reasons. And one, well, primarily to ensure that everyone everywhere has access to a, a safe and secure internet. Uh, we are also the organizational home of the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is the global group of volunteers who developed uh, the standards for the global development of the Internet. We're uh, a global not-for-profit. Uh, we have something like 60,000 members globally, about 140 chapters, uh, and have staff now in, I think, 27 different countries. And how are they supported? What's the, the mechanism? Um, I'm assuming you don't have printing presses for U.S. dollars. We receive an annual grant from an organization called the Public Interest Registry, which is the uh, registry for the .org, the .org top-level domain. So we should continue to register our, our organizations using .org and not just make everything .com. That would be wonderful. It supports that wonderful work we do in, in the Arctic. So let's, let me jump back to you, Katie, and ask, what are the sorts of things that, that ISOC has typically done? And we'll get more into what you're really focused on more recently after we talk about that. Uh, I like to think of our work as being, the work that I do for the Internet Society, being bucketed in two ways. Part of it is the trust element, and part of, the, of it is the access element. On the trust side, that's everything from privacy and security, um, security being, you know, encryption, IoT security, routing security, and then the access side being both the politics and the funding and the actual building of infrastructure to bring new communities online. 
And both of those things look really different depending on the day. Um, so sometimes we're working really closely with government representatives to make sure that they are being inclusive in the bills that they passed or that they have the technical information that they need before they draft a bill even. And some days it means that we are working with communities to just let them know that these resources exist and that their government representatives are there to work for them and that they have a voice at that level. Um, on the access side, one of the most interesting things that I, I think we've been doing recently is we've launched two trainings, one on policy and advocacy and one on community networks in the ramp up to our annual Indigenous Connectivity Summit. And the goal of those two trainings really is to help the participants of this summit and you know, partners in our wider community to understand that, first of all, they have a voice and they should use that voice as often as possible to change the bills that are bad, to change the laws that are bad. And then also that they have the power to actually build infrastructure and to connect their communities to the internet in the way that they see fit and give them a little bit of training on, on what that actually looks like. And Mark, is there anything that you'd like to add in terms of why you want to be involved with ISAC? I am of the mind, as are many people at the Internet Society, that uh, when people get access to the Internet, amazing things can happen. And we've seen it globally over our, our, our more than two and a half decades. Uh, and we continue to see it in communities that are just coming online. One thing the Internet Society does really well is um, uphold the principles of the multi-stakeholder model. So everything that we do works the way the internet does, with as many people from as many places working together on something and coming up with problem or solutions to problems or coming up with new ideas to make the internet better. And so that's everything from the way that we do events. Our Indigenous Connectivity Summit is the product of working with dozens of individuals and organizations from all over the region to make sure that there are really good conversations and outcomes to working with global representatives on IoT security from places as far as Senegal to Uruguay to the UK and Canada. Um, and it's a really unique role to work for an organization that has both local chapters and a global presence because it, it makes it a lot easier to scale the work up that we're doing on the ground into kind of a global movement towards specific goals um, like access and secure and trustworthy internet. As we move forward, we're going to talk about the community networks angle, but I just wanted to reiterate that your work on trust is is very important, making sure that, that the internet uh, continues in its goal of connecting everyone and not that it would become despoiled in the ways that I would describe cable television and radio technologies as kind of being ruined. You guys, I think of you as being as existing to make sure that the internet works for everyone, right? That's more or less, I think, in part, probably part of the reason that ISOC was created, I would think. Yeah, I, I absolutely think you're right. Um, and the two aren't necessarily disparate topics. When we think about deploying access to communities like Ulu Haktak or a community we're working with in Hawaii, when they come online, their voices will come online and make the internet a, a, a better, more inclusive place. So in doing the access work, we're actually improving the global internet uh, by bringing these voices online who haven't been there. It makes the internet a better place. So I, I get the sense that, in part because of the multi-stakeholder model that you identified, Katie, um, the, the ISOC North American Regional Bureau chapter has been focused on this community networks to a greater extent than it had been in the, had been in the past. And in part, that's because of the, the values and the emphasis that, that you're putting in that. Am I correct in that? So I think that 
the access piece has always been important, but we're approaching it in different ways now. So the Indigenous Connectivity Summit is something that's been held. This is its third year, and we're really excited about that. And I think part of the reason that this has become a bigger project is because that has just taken on a life of its own in a lot of ways. And it's led to so much new and amazing work and amazing stories and relationships with um, both locals and with politicians, because we've had government representatives at every summit. And that, that work has become very exciting. That being said, we do spend a ton of time on the trust side of things. Again, it depends on the day, but we easily spend 50% of our time on, on each of those different buckets. Our brains are very access focused with the summit coming up in about a month and a half. Well, Mark, you I think you deliberately moved yourself part of the time up north to um, the place of the second regional um, a tribal summit, right? Yeah, yeah. So about, jeez, uh, 20 years ago, time flies. Uh, my partner and I had moved to uh, a community called Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. Okay, then I was wrong because I thought you just moved to Inuvik recently. So, but sorry, please continue. No, but uh, if I had the opportunity, I'd go back in a in a heartbeat. <laughs> I, can t- I can tell you that. Yeah, so I had actually lived and worked in Inuvik for a few years Uh we had moved back to Ottawa in about 2003, and my work continued to be focused on on Arctic communities. So I was actually working in uh, Indigenous health policy at the time, with a focus on on Arctic peoples. Um, in fact, that's how I got interested in internet policy, generally, because I was working in health policy. It was at the time when uh, telemedicine and electronic health records were were really becoming a thing and and I saw potential in that to to you know improve healthcare delivery in northern communities if they had internet access but they didn't so they were missing out on this new great technology that could have really uh, helped but um, because of lack of access it, it couldn't uh, couldn't become a thing so essentially I became a, an advocate for broadband because of because of healthcare delivery and so when you're an advocate for broadband, what does ISOC bring to it? Um, aside from uh, one obvious result of bringing a lot of people up to Inuvik was that they had a much greater appreciation for the challenges involved. But at the end of the day, um, how are we connecting those kinds of communities? So I think one of ISOC's uh, greatest roles is as a, as a convener. Uh, we have a great ability to convene diverse groups of people because we have a lot of contacts across both the community through our chapters through uh through our members but also with with governments and 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 the private sector and we have a great ability to bring those people together to discuss issues like connectivity or or other potentially contentious issues i think we're unique in the ecosystem for for the ability to bring you know diverse groups together and have those discussions in a in a safe environment we don't have an agenda going in uh we want to see the internet successful we want to see people connect to the internet but um uh, we don't have an agenda with regard to that so i think we're seen as more of a, a, a trusted uh partner that can do that and Katie, let me ask you, can you give us a, a preview of what you're going to be doing in Hawaii um, with uh, in terms of actually building network? Like for the people who are listening to this, who are really engineering focused, I think they'd love to hear some of the technical challenges that you'll be wrestling with. 
Yeah, the technical challenges have been interesting. Um, we're really lucky. I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but we've got amazing partners who are helping us work through all of those things. But as far as kind of what this is going to look like, the, the summit itself is going to bring together people from all across the region to talk about a huge range of topics, everything from culture and language to the politics to funding sources, et cetera, et cetera. Then we'll actually go to Waimanalo, Hawaii, where Mark actually spent some time a few weeks ago, or I guess now a couple months ago, um, working with the community, doing site assessments and things like that. And we're going to bring in the participants of the virtual community network training and community members in that community to actually put up infrastructure so that they can run their own network after the summit is completed. As far as what that network actually looks like, I know we have fiber backhaul, which is really exciting. I assume that the the best setup for this community is probably going to be sort of like a mesh network or almost like a giant Wi-Fi hotspot. One of the most important elements of this work is letting the community decide what they want. And so we really emphasize that there's some pretty basic equipment we can get, antennas and routers and things like that. But as far as how they want to set it up, if they do want to have one local spot where it's just a huge Wi-Fi hotspot, great. If they want to put routers throughout and have, you know, actually direct to the home service, great. And we're really excited about it, whatever they choose. But um, I'm hesitant to say exactly what it will look like before they've had the chance to decide for themselves. Mark, when you were there looking at the the area to try and get a sense of, of whatever information you needed to collect, what were you looking for? And, and was it in part trying to get a sense of all the different options that a community would choose from? We're talking about actually a... a a very small community. The population is about 90. Uh, it's built up the side of, uh, of a mountain coming off of the ocean. It's actually stunningly beautiful there. Oh, that's, that's the part of Hawaii that's stunningly beautiful on the big Island. Yeah. It, <laughs> it was, it's absolutely incredible, but you know, we were there looking at uh, the size of the community, the topography, where we would place towers if necessary, where we could tap into a fiber line, uh, those kinds of things. What I found fascinating about about the community in Hawaii is the challenges that they're facing, that they faced in the past to get connected, are no different than the challenges the communities that we're working with in the Arctic face. You know, it's it's access to backhaul, it's funding sources, it's being able to deploy a network on their own terms that that that's affordable. There are some superficial differences like. Uh, you know, Hawaii doesn't necessarily have to worry too much about extreme cold. When it gets down to minus 40, that's a, a, a different challenge in the Arctic than it is in Hawaii. But I'm sure we'll we'll face some of those unique challenges in, in Hawaii as well. Yeah, more cyclones, fewer polar bears. <laughs> yes, exactly. Where did you find a fiber line out there? Hawaii, there is a, a private sector company called Hawaiian Telecom, uh, they have fiber all over uh, the island. This community is actually on uh, Maui, um, not oh, too okay. far from not too far from Honolulu. In fact, that's actually one of the the striking things about about working in Hawaii is that you can be in Honolulu with its excessive wealth uh, and you know high end hotels, and uh, you drive forty minutes outside of the city. And you have uh, communities where it's a very, very different world. And I, I made a comment earlier about the Big Island. I think is the Indigenous Summit on the Big Island, and then you're building the network on Maui. 
Yeah, yeah. So there are two parts to the summit. The first is the uh, the summit itself, which is in Hilo, Hawaii, on November 12th and 13th. And on the 14th and 15th, we'll be traveling to Baimanalo to, to work with the community to deploy the network and uh, on-the-ground training program. Wonderful. Just to come out of nowhere with a question, would you say that, um, what would you say were the top takeaways from uh, the New Mexico, which I think was the first Indigenous um, summit, right? Yeah, the first one was in 2017 in in Santa Fe. Uh, the big takeaway, well, it, there were actually a couple. Uh, the first was that we could actually pull off the summit. Uh, it wasn't like anything we had ever done before. Uh, it's working with a community that that the Internet Society hasn't worked with in the past. But my biggest takeaway for for real was that there was a, a community waiting for this to happen and a community ready to come together to support connectivity across the across the, the continent. So let me, Katie, let me ask you, because I think I want to deal with an unfair and, um, but I think perhaps widely held stereotype, which is that you would often think that the sort of people involved with ISOC would be very technical and have poor communication skills. And so same sort of question for you in terms of um, what you've seen from mixing these um, communities in which people, I think, have much less technical training, um, but a great enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a hysterical and very valid point. Um, <laughs> I think more and more these kind of communities are mixing because I agree with you until very, very recently, the tech savvy people hung out among themselves and they had great ideas together and the policy or communication people hung hung out among themselves and had great ideas. But we're realizing pretty quickly that that's not possible anymore. If you're a politician who doesn't understand the technology or a communications person who doesn't understand the technology or a technologist who doesn't understand how policies are going to impact your work, there's a missing link. There's a huge, huge gap in the way that you are approaching a problem. So the summit is a really cool space for that. And a lot of the events that we do are a really cool space for that because I think there is a a growing and strong community that is trying to do a little bit of both. And the people we work with have been really eager to learn from each other. And that's what makes the summit and all of our events so interesting is that there is a really good communication among participants and information sharing and new and unexpected partnerships from every one of these summits, which is fantastic. Um, and that's also why I like the trainings. We have the policy and advocacy and the community networks trainings and they're separate, but there are is a huge amount of crossover between the speakers on each of them and the participants on each of them and the kinds of conversations I expect to have when we get to the summit because of them. So they're, they're siloed but interlinked in a lot of ways as are many of the, the people that we continue to work with. How do you respond to a somewhat condescending attitude that, that I, I, I'm entirely familiar with, which is a nice pat on the head. Oh, that's nice. You're building a little community network. That's nice. I'm going to go on and do something big. Um, you know, how do you, how do you respond to that, Katie? You know, I have always had the big internet access. And I got to tell you, I don't love my provider. I haven't ever loved my provider. They are very frustrating to work with. And I have a feeling that most others who live in a city would feel the same way. But you go into these communities where there's not a lot of resources and they're up front with that. The challenges are huge. The problems are huge. And yet they are so willing to do whatever it takes to 
make sure that their community continues to grow and thrive and learn and live a healthy lifestyle. And uh, they're used to solving their own problems. You know, the more rural you get, the more independent you have to be. And they are no stranger to finding a new tool and, you know, kind of making it fit their community. And the internet is just like that. And so it's fantastic to work with communities that are, one, excited to be a provider, but two, so excited to work with that provider. Um, that's a pretty unique experience when your community members are rallying around you to, to build something new. Uh, and the kinds of tools that they have created using these rural and remote communities have created using the internet are really amazing, especially when it comes to, I think, language and culture preservation. Uh, we just talked to a group a couple of weeks ago who worked with Duolingo to create a native Hawaiian language um, application on that app. And it had almost half a million people that had used that, that tool. That's significantly more than the number of total Native Hawaiians in the United States. And that's amazing that something like that could come from a small community and grow in such a huge way. So I think we're just going to hear more and more of those stories. And anybody who is feeling salty, I would say, just watch out. The stuff is happening. <laughs> Mark, let me ask you the same question. Although I'm, you're not going to have nearly as good a response. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, this, this DIY method of, of building the Internet that we've really become a big proponent of is, in fact, how the original the, the Internet was built originally. It was groups of people in communities who came together, uh, advocated for access or built it them, them, themselves. Right. That's really the roots of the Internet Society right there. People formed ISOC chapters to come together to get access in their community. Their communities may not have been, you know, uh, 90 people living in, in rural Hawaii or 400 that perched on the edge of the, the Arctic Ocean. But, uh, you know, this is the way the Internet was built. This is what the Internet was meant to be. This group of people who can come together work cooperatively to build something for the betterment of society. Well, that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> I try my best. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's really inspiring. And, you know, I, you mentioned that this is a 27 year old organization. I, most of the people who are listening to this show right now have used the internet for considerably less time. And I think most people, even those of us who try not to have this, we have this conception of the internet that requires you know, large organizations to keep it going and, and what would happen? And in fact, there was recently this question of if Google and Facebook disappeared, what would happen? And, and well, I'd miss my email. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Um, but uh, it would carry on. And that's one of the great things about the internet. And I, I think it's, I didn't have a sense of everything the internet society does, but I love that that's infused into how you do everything. You know, we are the internet society so we are the internet and we are we are society we tend to forget that at the end of of every tweet at the end of every email is a person right and we really see ourselves as operating <laughs> at the okay. intersection between the internet and society most most tweets some of them are from russian tweet farms well this bots. is true but that, that's that's a topic for another podcast right no but you're you're right actually and i and i you know, I, I desperately hope that we're coming to a point in which we do connect words on our screen with other human beings. So today I was actually thinking as I was just thinking about some angry tweets and and I was thinking that the way that we get really angry at other people on the internet, I think in some ways shows that 
we care. And in some ways, we care more about greater numbers of people than we have before because we're exposed to greater numbers of people. And a lot of us have thought of this in negative ways. Why are we so mean to each other? But um, oftentimes, I think we're mean and we react that way because we want other people to um, have the right opinions or to think well of us or things like that. Yeah, that, that's an excellent way at, at looking at it, that there's a degree of passion behind all of those those angry tweets that uh, if we could harness that for the power of good, we could, we could change the world. I feel like I, I need to ask Katie for a character reference. I'm not high right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you, is there anything else that we should really hit on that you're working on uh, for people who are not familiar with the Internet Society or any aspects of the work you're doing around community networks we haven't explained well enough? We do have fantastic work going on, though, in Canada around IoT security. We wrapped up a year and a half long process back in May, creating recommendations for IoT security that have now been carried forward by an implementation working group. It'll be carried out over, we hope, the next year or so. Yeah, Internet of Things, IoT um, security. It's it's a big deal because on multiple fronts, one is, and I, Katie, you're just assuming everyone knows this, but I'm, so I'm not, I don't mean to be mansplaining to you, but I feel like the audience needs a little bit. Um, the, um, you know, the, these devices that we're buying um, are often insecure and they put us at risk, but they also put the entire internet at risk because um, negative or malware, um, bad people often in Russia or China, I might say, um, are infecting those devices and using them to attack other other parts of the internet. So it's a really big deal to solve this problem. And I'm glad that you're working on it. So no, I mean, I, I agree. It's a huge deal. And it's a huge deal because it's not specific to one country. I mean, very little about the internet is specific to one country beyond the access side of things. But on IoT security, if you have some sort of a botnet attack, some sort of a, a malicious attack, it's going to be pretty rare that those devices that we're attacking exist only in one specific place or impact only one specific part of a network. And as we saw with a, an incident with Dyn a few years ago, the botnet attacks can take down massive pieces of the internet for you know anywhere from a few seconds to minutes to hours to days, depending on the kind of attack. So it's really important that all stakeholders work together on this, and it's really important that all countries work together on this because if one person fixes the problem, it's still a problem. Um, so I'm really proud of the work we've done in Canada and I'm really proud that now we have a group of global organizations and government representatives working together to figure out um, ways that they can collaborate moving forward on IoT security, which is, and we call that the IoT security policy platform. Um, it's a great group of people that are really committed to making the internet as a whole more secure. Great. And Mark, is there anything else you wanted to bring up? Well, I think Katie put all of that very well. I will do the uh, obligatory plug that uh, the Internet Society is a, a, a membership organization and membership is, is free and open to anyone. And you just have to visit uh, internetsociety.org and, and sign up and be a part of this great work that we're doing. And register domain names with a .org extension. Yes, please. Great. Well, thank you so much for both of your time and, and your work. I'm, I'm so excited that there are um, so many resources going to these uh, tribal communities um, focused on indigenous connect connectivity. Um, these are people that have been marginalized for so long, and um, the Internet can offer tremendous benefits that I hope will uh, reverse those, um, in some cases, hundreds of years of negative attacks. Um, thank you both. 
And thank you, Chris, for giving us an opportunity to talk about things we, we love to do and love to talk about. That was Christopher with Mark Buell and KD Watson-Jordan from the Internet Society. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to episode 376 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>